we were going down the path of all small ski areas. Ski areas are very capital intense facility. They need tons of revenue to operate, cost of power, snowmaking, and so forth. We needed the capital improvements. We didn't have the money for it. What we had is a pretty special facility with tons of history. And we um, got under the radar of the Libra Foundation, the Main Motor Sports Center, and um, they stepped up. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, back to one of the best ski states in America and maybe the one with the best people in America, Maine. First, though, I want to remind you, go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. The newsletter, not the podcast, is the heart of the storm where I break down the world of lift surf skiing on a weekly basis. If weekly doesn't do it for you, follow the storm on Instagram or Twitter for constant updates. Okay, big news for my sponsor before we get to the show. You have been listening to me speak about Mountain Gazette for more than a year now. And you know the drill, it's beautiful, large, and it features stunning photography and simply the best long form riding in the business. But here's the thing, Mountain Gazette wants to say thank you to you, the loyal subscriber. From now until New Year's, Mountain Gazette is giving away free swag to subscribers. That's right, if you're subscribed to the magazine, you are all set. They're giving away hoodies, posters, a ski tar, a cord of wood, and two indie passes. Because without you, there is no Mountain Gazette not subscribed enter code go higher dash 10 all one word for 10% off subscriptions over at mountaingazette.com this code is only valid for listeners of the storm mountain gazette wishes all of their subscribers a very happy holiday and happy new year mountain gazette when in doubt go higher episode 67 Roger Arsenault, Chairman of the Board of Directors, and Deanna Kersey, Marketing Manager of Black Mountain of Maine. It's far, but Maine skiing is worth it. Great terrain, better people. I love being up there. Never have a bad time. Definitely worth the haul. And the state is absolutely full of good ski stories. There's the comeback of Saddleback. There's Boyne Resorts buying Shawnee Peak and all but guaranteeing that that place will be around for generations. And there's world-class knucklehead James Canfalone finally ready to sell Big Squaw so a buyer who cares can fix the place up. But no story in Maine is better than Black Mountain of Maine. This is a place that, by all rights, should have disappeared a long time ago. Instead, it has quietly become one of the most interesting ski areas in New England, with an ever-evolving trail network that is absolutely stuffed with glades. As I often say, there was nothing inevitable about this. Black Mountain of Maine became great because a community of skiers cared and made it great. And I mean that in the most literal way. This is a non-profit ski area run for skiers by skiers. And this is a story you are going to want to hear. Let's go. My guests today are the chairman of the board of directors and the marketing manager of Black Mountain of Maine. Black Mountain of Maine is a 501c3 nonprofit. The ski area has 50 trails and glades on a 1,380 foot vertical drop, making it the fourth tallest ski area in the state of Maine. Joining me today is Roger Arsenault the chairman of the board of directors of Black Mountain of Maine. When Roger isn't running his business, Community Energy in Rumford, Maine, you can find him volunteering at Black Mountain or for the Chisholm Ski Club. He is a fixture at the mountain and an avid skier. Also joining me is Deanna Kersey. She is the marketing manager at Black Mountain of Maine. She is also the mountain's photographer. When she's not working, she enjoys skiing, time in nature, and spending time with her two-year-old Springer Spaniel Zilly. Roger, Deanna, thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. Thanks for having us. 
So I want to start out with with the 501c3 status. Black Mountain of Maine is a nonprofit organization. Tell us about who owns and operates Black Mountain of Maine. Well, Black Mountain is operated by um, 11 board members. We were appointed by the Libra Foundation when they took over ownership of the Maine Winter Sports Center. And our job is to um, govern the operation. We have a general manager that is, is uh, responsible for the day-to-day operation. And we meet on a monthly basis year-round um, to review the, review the financials and, and uh, future planning and um, day-to-day operations. And uh, I think the one thing I'd like to say that's pretty exciting is since 2003, when we were first formed, we still have about 80% of the founding members, which is pretty oh, wow. pretty interesting. I've, I've served on a number of boards, and I don't think um, I've seen anything like this board. They're really engaged. What do you think's behind that, Roger? Why is there so much passion for this mountain? A lot of them. We have a mix on the board of uh, longtime area members, business people, uh, professionals. Um, there's just some magic about Black Mountain. Um, it seems like once you're on the board, um, you get fully engaged. And the board is just not a board that meets every month. Um, they're involved with a lot of the fundraising and a lot of the volunteerism at the mountain. So, so let's get into that a little bit more because I've hosted a few, the managers of a few different nonprofit ski areas on the podcast. So Whaleback over in New Hampshire is one. Lonesome Pine way up there in Maine is another one. And they all operate a little bit differently and have a little bit different model. So talk about, you're just referring to fundraising, Roger. Talk a little bit more about where the mountain gets its funds and how you go about doing that. Well, it's a mix of a number of things. We have a uh, initiated article request to the town of Rumford every year, which um, they are quite supportive. Uh, when we look at the town vote, um, it's on the positive side. Um, they recognize Black Mountain as uh, an economic engine for the greater Rumford area. Uh, when they interview people or bring them to town or some of the professional businesses bring people to town, they bring them to Black Mountain and show what we have to offer because it is pretty special. We also uh, do a number of, you know, um, fundraisers. We go after grants, uh, private businesses. Uh, it's a mix of a little bit of everything. If an individual is listening to this and they want to make a contribution to Black Mountain of Maine, how would they do that? I can answer that for you. There are two ways that people can contribute to Black Mountain. Of course, you just mentioned the monetary way, and that is easily done by simply mailing a check the snail mail way. Our address is straight on our website, or we actually have a giving form um, available on our website, which they can do that as well. The other way that people might not recognize is a big way to give back to the mountain is with time. We have, as Roger said, many events during the season that just require outside help. It it keeps the mountain going. Um, it keeps us focused on our mission statement, which actually, if I could take a moment to read that, it might be a good time to, to speak to what our mission actually is. <clears throat> Uh, Black Mountain of Maine is dedicated to inspiring people of all ages to choose healthy lifestyle options through skiing, winter, and outdoor activities. We offer a fun, family-oriented experience at the best possible value and are devoted in making a difference in people's lives. So everything we do is to support that mission statement. So people coming to the mountain, giving their time, whether it's helping for events or helping the angry beavers with their glade work, all of that feeds back into our ability to keep skiing affordable. So it sounds like you have a mix of things going on. You have grants and fundraisers. There's a contribution from the town. Uh, there's individual givers. There's volunteer work. I would imagine the skiing does generate some revenue as well, but it doesn't sound like it's enough to cover operations. When you look at your workforce, uh, what's who are the who are the folks that are actually on the payroll? What what are the jobs that you have to pay people to do, and what are the jobs that lean more on volunteer work? Well, we kind of have two business models. We have our skier visits that happen obviously during the winter, and then we run wedding and events um, during the summer. So we're talking everything from snowmaking to lift attendance to 
bartenders, you know, wait staff. We have we have management on the upper level, ticket office, rental shops. <laughs> we typically employ around 65 to 70 people a year and we have four full-time four or five full-time employees um, that manage the facility and the operations through all 12 months. And and if I wanted to come and volunteer at Black Mountain, what, what sorts of things do you have for volunteers to do? What sorts of jobs? Oh, that would be everything from parking cars to okay. setting up uh, race courses. A good example is this coming Saturday, uh, the 18th, we're having what's called a hill climb snowmobiles. The mountain isn't open yet because we don't have top to bottom snow, but we have enough snow on the bottom of the mountain to uh, run a speed trap and will attract anywhere from 100 to 200 sleds. Uh, snack bar, malt bar will be open and it's a way to generate revenue before we open later this month. Um, board of directors, um, we good charge of them will be here Saturday to help as Deanna said, either parking cars, timing, um, or on the hill crew. It's um, it's it's a profit center for us in this one day. Mm-hmm. And uh, do volunteers get a lift ticket, season pass? What what's the what's the deal? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I've been here for forty something years, and I've never taken a ticket. Um, and it's the same with the board members. We don't we don't get free passes. We pay our lift ticket just like everybody else does. As Roger mentioned, there is just this innate passion for Black Mountain of Maine. There's something special about it. Once you come, once you come, you're hooked. It, I can only explain it like a family, like a family reunion where you would get together and just want to help people. Yeah, it's a, it's a really special place and it has a really interesting history. And, and I want to get into that a little bit here. But before we do that, I, I want to set the stage a little bit. Why does it make sense to run Black Mountain of Maine as a nonprofit rather than try to be like Mount Abram or Shawnee or these other mid-sized Maine ski areas that have it as a business where they need to make a profit. Why does it make sense for Black Mountain to operate on this model? Obviously, a nonprofit has some advantages. So it gives us a little bit of a cushion to, um, again, um, fulfill our mission. We're also in the middle of um, ski country, which we have, and they all have their special reasons for being successful. Obviously, Sunday, Sunday River is a major corporation. Just down the road is Mount Abram that happens to be 20 minutes closer to Sunday River and about a half hour close to us. We're also an hour plus closer than Saddleback and even further to Sugarloaf. So, you know, we have pressures all around. Um, we a lot different today than we were in the past. We've grown to the point where um, we have a pretty good offering for the for the public. I mean, you can have a really fun day skiing here and not get bored. Many years ago, we were just a 420-foot vertical, 2,000-foot T-bar. Um, and what we had to charge for skiing and only have it available January 1 through, luckily, the end of March, you could go to Sunday River and buy a ticket for $200 and ski 60 something days a year. So, you know, we've come a long ways. We're a little different, but again, we're fulfilling our mission um, to provide affordable skiing and getting people back in the sport. All right. So let's get into that history a little bit. Just to kind of set the stage here, who actually owns the land? Is it the town? The land was originally owned by the Chisholm Ski Club. And in the 70s, it was deeded over to the Greater Rumford Community Center, which was a recreation arm in the community. They were all nonprofits. They ran it through 2003 when Libra took over and the main one a sports center. And um, the land was owned by that, those organizations. When Libra deeded the facility over to us, they deeded the acreage as well. So as long as we remain a not a ski area, we would continue to own the facility. If we defaulted or closed the doors, it would revert back to a another nonprofit organization, and that would be um, through the Libra Foundation. 
I guess that's the clearest way that I can explain it. So let's go back to that transition to the Maine Winter Sports Center. Uh, Black Mountain of Maine was run for a long time by the town of Rumford. So why did you make that transition? Why did the ski area transition to the Maine Winter Sports Center? And why was that the right thing to do? We were going down the path of all small ski areas. Ski areas are very capital intense facility. They need tons of revenue to operate, um, cost of power, snowmaking, and so forth. Um, you know, we, we needed the capital improvements. We didn't have the money for it. But what we had is a pretty special facility with tons of history. And we um, got under the radar of the Libra Foundation, the Maine Winter Sports Center, and um, they stepped up. So let's just talk about the mountain's evolution because the, the changes have been very dramatic. And if you go online and you look at the old trail maps, you can see exactly what you were just talking about, Roger, which is a 400-foot bump with a T-bar, which is fine for a little community ski area. But the truth is you were sitting right there on a big mountain with big potential. And my understanding was a chairlift was ordered in the 90s and then there was no money to put it in. So Maine Winter Sports Center kind of helped get over the hump. So, t- so you referred to this earlier, that chairlift to the summit that uh, Maine Winter Sports Center helped install. So take us through that process. How was Maine Winter Sports Center able to help the mountain get the capital it needed to go from being a small community ski area that was kind of endangered to what is actually a very nice mountain with a with an impressive trail network and an almost 1400 vertical foot drop, uh, as we talked about earlier. So just take us through that process of of the mountain's evolution in those early years of the Maine Winter Sports Center? Well, it, it goes back to the Libra Foundation. They recognized the history of uh, Rumford, the ski history of Rumford and Black Mountain. And uh, they understood without capital infusion that we would go the way of other small skiers. If you look at Ski Area Boneyard, you'll see that we could have been one of them. And uh, they uh, knew of Chummy Broom Hall, who was our godfather of skiing. He was part of the 10th Mountain Division and a two-time Olympian. And he was invited to uh, Fort Kent in the dedication of the uh, 10th Mountain Division Lodge and uh, had an opportunity to talk to uh, the Libra Foundation and asked them to take a look at uh, Black Mountain, which they did. And... um, through the Maine Winter Sports Center and the Libra Foundation, um, they uh, chose to invest in the community back in 2003. And they were very true to their mission. They usually invest in a facility for 10 years and then turn it over to an operating board. Um, And they did that and will forever be grateful of the investment they made in the area. So talk about the decision to invest in that chairlift, because what what that did was it substantially changed the profile of the ski area and, and, and transformed it from a small ski area to a mid-sized ski area. So talk about the process of putting up that chairlift and how much that changed the experience of skiing at Black Mountain of Maine. Well, they knew they knew what we had to do. We, we had to grow from the 420-foot vertical uh, People were spoiled with uh, um, surface lifts. Uh, that's pretty much was a thing of the past at the time. Everybody wanted the convenience of, of uh, a chairlift or or larger unit. Um, they also saw the potential for uh, increasing the vertical, the new base lodge, the paved parking lot. They wanted to enhance the offering in Rumford. And quite frankly, Maine Winter Sports Center and especially Libra when they invest in something, they want to do the best they can. And they certainly did it here. So how much did the mountain change once you got that chairlift in place? We began to attract uh, people from away. The general manager and some volunteers would go to ski shows uh, across the state of Maine. And nobody knew what Black Mountain was. All they remembered was growing up. It had one T-bar and a 420-foot vertical, no snowmaking. And to, to um, get rid of that stigma, it took an awful lot of work and an awful lot of grassroots marketing uh, to get the word out. And what happened was, as people came here, two things happened. They recognized that it was an incredible ski experience. And secondly, they could bring their family and have a safe, enjoyable 
stay at a you know at an affordable price. So we had growth mostly through word of mouth for the first few years, and now it's obviously social media, but still word of mouth. Um, it's a whole different experience than it was ten years ago. And can you give us any? Any sense of, I mean, any, anyone can look at the trail maps and see that the ski area is growing over time, but can you give us any sense from a statistical point of view of skier visits or a peek into the finances that demonstrates how the ski area has continued to stabilize and grow over the years? Uh, I think we've experienced about a 39 to 40% growth per year. We tend to go at a measured kind of a pace. We like to call it organic. You know, we... We have seen a lot more families from all over Maine, New England, and beyond. They come because they want to share that experience with their families. They tell their friends, as Roger said. Yeah, you know, you're not far from Sunday River, and I love Sunday River. Outstanding operation, great people over there, but it can get crowded, and it's a little overwhelming for families because it's such a huge place. As the Icon Pass has settled in and that's brought more skiers to Maine, to Sunday River, have you seen more of these local families coming to a place like Black Mountain of Maine to say, okay, we we need just a little bit calmer experience? We've actually seen a lot of people from Sunday River. Um, A few years ago, people caught on that they could purchase a one pass at Sunday River and one pass at Black Mountain of Maine and ski for seven days a week for less money than they would for a full pass at one of the larger mountains. So we gained a lot of families that way. And then of course, yeah, there's, there are quite a few families who just don't want that pace. The feel here is completely different. You are part of our family. You're not just a family going skiing. You're part of the black mountain family. And, and that's innate. It's, it's you have to come and experience it, Stuart, <laughs> because it really is hard to explain. Once you've experienced it, you really want to stay. It's yeah, it, it, it's high on my list. Believe me, and, and and we'll get into some of the reasons why in a little bit here because the skiing just looks amazing. I do want to just wrap this up with with uh, with the management. The Main Winter Sports Center, I believe, evolved into another entity. So just. Take us through, kind of finish the evolution. The Maine Winter Sports Center took over from the town. Uh, what does the current management dynamic look like? What, what is the organization that, that, that oversees the ski area? You mean our current board? Well, yeah. Are, are you Because the Maine Winter Sports Center evolved into something else, I believe. Yeah, they had a sports institute. We had no affiliation with them at all. Um, so I really can't speak to that. Um, they have. They never had any um, organized facilities here. There was no training facility as they were at uh, um, Big Rock or um, the sports, the Heritage Center. Um, they strictly owned the facility, and we managed the Alpine side of it and the Nordic side. But we had no training facility here, so we were a little different than any, their other entities. Mm-hmm. And does the town still contribute to operating expenses? Absolutely. There was a little snafu with that in 2013 when the town voted to withhold funding and your local skiers did a really impressive response. They stepped in and filled that gap. Just talk a little bit about that incident and what it tells us about the local skiing community and their passion for Black Mountain of Maine. Well, I think you got to mention that the townspeople uh, rejected almost a hundred uh, initiated articles, not just Black Mountain. They just they just wiped out all of the initiated articles um, that one year. And I think the following year they realized what they did. And uh, since that day, we've we've had a hundred percent support. But but you're right. The uh, skiing public, both near and far, um, rallied, and we did an incredible job of generating almost $200,000 in a very short period of time, which proved to the Libra Foundation that, you know, we truly have backing locally. But I think it was a misrepresentation when they said that the town, that the town shot down Black Mountain's initiated article. It was across the board. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, glad you're back in a more stable position with the town. That's an important relationship, it sounds like, and, and it sounds like you have a lot of support. So let's let's shift our focus to the mountain here. And I really want to start with the glades because I think that Black Mountain of Maine has built out what looks to be one of the most extensive and impressive mid-sized mountain glade networks in New England. And from all, by all accounts, the credit for that goes to the Angry Beavers. And the work they've done is just phenomenal. If you look at trail maps for Black Mountain of Maine a decade ago, there's not a single marked glade on the trail map. Now, I'm not going to say there were no glades um, because we all know there's secrets in the woods, but they have built out this incredible network and, and it's done in a very understated way. This, this, there's nothing flashy. They just sort of appear on the trail map every year. Uh, but let's start with the Angry Beavers. Who are the Angry Beavers? You can't really talk about the Angry Beavers without mentioning uh, the father and son team that started the Angry Beavers, and that would be Jeff and Jerry Marcou. So they're father and son. They're local. Actually, Jeff lives in New Hampshire now, but Jerry lives right down the road in Dixfield. They got together, as I understand it, somewhere around 2010 and basically decided that this would be something that they would be interested in doing. They saw a need for increasing demand for fresh powder and a little bit more challenging terrain. And they kind of just started cutting glades, just the two of them. It wasn't until later that, you know, they took themselves to social media. They formulated a little bit larger teams over the years with volunteers that go out and cut glades. I think it's important to say that they are doing that with the support of the mountain and the board. Uh, it originally started by Jerry and Jeff going to the general manager and asking him if they could cut a particular glade in a section of the mountain. And he gave them their blessing and said, you know, go for it. Uh, and the relationship just blossomed from then. Um, they do check with us. We, we talk to them about future plans, trails, and so forth. So it's it's a great relationship. And I, I can't emphasize enough um, how excited we are to have them. As Deanna said, um, you can't measure the passion that they have and what they've accomplished for the mountain. It's really remarkable. And so it sounds like what I'm hearing is that they're doing this entirely as volunteers. Is that right? Yes. Yep. And, and they come to you and say, okay, you know, we think that a glade would make sense from this trail to this trail. And you assess that and just say, go for it. They do their research in the summer. They check out what areas they think would be best. They have an incredible knowledge of the mountain and the surrounding terrain. They know where the trees are, where the snow falls. They consider safety. They not only meet with the board to present these ideas, but they also meet with our ski patrol um, just to make sure that everything is in line as the way it should be. And they schedule, I don't know how many Glade volunteer days they scheduled this summer, at least four, anywhere from four to six um, official Glade days where they search for volunteers to, to help them. Um, I spoke to Jeff the other day and he was describing how they've become more efficient over the years, even as a small crew. They've been donated. They've been gifted some power tools, which have made things a lot easier. So they're a little more efficient than they were. Yeah, the, the amount of work they've done is just incredible. What, what, what are the size of the crews that they're able to rally to go into the woods and help them with this? You know, there's, there's days where just the two of them are there, and there are days when there's uh, half a dozen to a dozen people. And then there's, there's some, um, like she said, uh, four to six organized uh, work sessions where they'll get a, we'll get more people. And it's a diversified group. You know, I'll, I can tell you that I made it in the years. I think I've only made it up there once to work with them, only because my uh, involvement is, is otherwhere, you know, elsewhere. But there's 200 plus volunteers that that uh, have showed up over the years, um, some regulars and some just once or twice a year. So what's their do you have a sense of of how much time they spend clearing new glades and how much time they spend maintaining the ones that they've already thinned? They're very careful not to bite off more than they can chew. 
Um, when they first started, their primary focus was to create those new glades and, and kind of get that rolling. But over the past couple of years, particularly this past year, they've refocused themselves on maintaining those glades that have already been created. So not new glades per se in the last year. They've been focusing on just maintaining those existing ones. Jeff said, he told me the other day, he's like, we, we really have a good handle on this. You know, their experience, like I said, more and more efficient. So I don't know their ratio. Right now they try to make a loop back, he said, about every every couple years coming back to make sure that they've addressed those existing glades. They want to make sure they address the existing ones before they put new ones in. It's amazing how quick they grow back in and also there's blowdowns that they have to deal with every year. And that even goes on that even goes on through the winter months. If you ski a glade and see a tree a tree down, it has to be dealt with for safety reasons. Are they up against any sort of regulations as they're going through or, or, or are they allowed to just thin the forest at will? Well, they're not clear cutting, so we should be we should be clear about that. Uh, there's no real regulations for them because it is private property, so there's no prohibitive prohibitive practices. They're great stewards of the land. They take care to avoid any wetlands or streams or anything like that. They're really just out there thinning those trees so people can ski them. Um, and it's it sounds like we're only talking about backcountry crazy skiing right now. But we have glades on this mountain that can welcome skiers from beginner skills right up to expert level. Uh, we have glades in our novice area. Jeff was saying that this year they've kind of tried to cut glades right along the sides of existing trails, knowing that snowmaking, they've, they've concentrated doing that on the trails where we make snow. So when it blows in, they can kind of reap the benefits of that. It's kind of low commitment as far as a kid or a parent. The parent can ski on the trail and the, the kid can go in the glade and they don't lose sight of them. Um, so there's everything from that to that full backcountry, you know, more expert experience. Yeah, I'm a big fan of novice glades and blue glades. I think for, for a very long time, glades have been focused on double black diamond terrain. And that can be pretty intimidating if that's your first experience with glades and you're dealing with the pitch. It's it's nice because I have kids and I, I like to take them in the green glades and it's just sort of feels like a little adventure. So it's good to see them all over the mountain. I'm looking at your trail map right now. And actually, I really like your trail map. It's not quite like anything else out there. I, I have a specific question, but, but first I want to ask you, who makes your trail map? It's really cool. <laughs> we had a volunteer. Um who was recruited to work here. This might be a loose interpretation, but it's coming uh, by our ski patroller. She worked here for a couple of years. She had hiked the Appalachian Trail by herself. Um, I, for the life of me, cannot remember what university she went to, but she went out and mapped this whole thing. She but, was a civil engineer. Yeah, she's a civil engineer. I can't remember what school. This is terrible. Um, her name is Nicole, and she map the whole thing for us it, it is it is really cool so th th what i was getting at here is you have a lot of glades in your trail map uh, rumor has it that there are a lot more glades that aren't on the trail map um, and i'd imagine you're not going to tell me too much about them but but it, to what extent does the trail map represent the best glades that have been cut by the angry beavers and and to what extent are there little easter eggs hidden all over the mountain that we can find if we know where to look. So it's been, I think a couple of years since that trail map has been put out. So the beavers have definitely added more glades than are represented on that map. Um, there aren't secret glades per se, but more glades that are, let's just say they're hidden in plain sight. So any patch of woods really that you see, you'd be likely to, be able to find a glade. Some are marked, um, even outside of what's on the map, and and some are not marked. So they're when the natural snow hits, there's there's stashes. Just follow, just follow the track. <laughs> <laughs> there's not sucker tracks on the mountain, right? I'm not going to get cliffed out here. I don't know no, what's in the woods. No, 
um, okay. th those in the know know where to go and usually the rest of us follow. All right. So, sounds like I got We're a friendly bunch as we as we mentioned, so it wouldn't be difficult to find somebody to take you. All right. We're going to have to make that happen. Uh, okay. So let's talk about the rest of the trail map because, you know, as I said, this is, and I'll, I'll lay this out in the article that accompanies the podcast. So for anyone listening, uh, go check stormskiing.com for the article that accompanies this. And I'll lay out the progression over the years because it, it's, it's very interesting when, when you look at the trail maps over the years, because we started with the little 400 foot bump with the T-bar and then you went to the top of the mountain and it was still a, a very narrow trail network, sort of the, the trails you still have bunched around your alpha lift. And then you just sort of started going out <laughs> uh, little by little and, and, and without any kind of fanfare and in a very understated way, this mountain has grown into, into just a fantastic little place with, with that can give you a really good ski day. So let's just talk about this for a little bit. Um, just talk about your philosophy of just adding a little bit each year without the big press releases and the master plans. And you're just, you're just cutting new trails and making a better experience. Talk about how, how and why you approach it that way. Well, I think we could start out if you're looking at the trail um, and if you've skied Black Mountain, you'd find that um, skiing off of the new summit chair uh, was intermediate to advanced intermediate terrain at the top. And it was really hard for uh, a lower intermediate and a novice skier to safely descend the mountain. So we looked for an opportunity to put a novice trail in, and that would be to the skier's left, called the Allagash and the St. John. We basically bushwhacked our way from the top to the bottom of the mountain and uh, laid out the trail. A local logger offered to cut the trail for us, and um, lo and behold, it became one of the one of the most enjoyable trails on the mountain. In fact, I, I've skied all over the world and I still enjoy that particular run. So it, it allows all those young skiers to make it to the top and enjoy uh, a long run down. Um, a few years later, we, uh, and again, we filled in in between with the St. John and other little gems along the way. Um, We've always looked at the mountain to skiers uh, to the right, which we call East Bowl. And we knew that the terrain up there was really awesome. And we had a, a logging operation that owns property at the top of the mountain, and they had no way to cut their property and to get it, uh, get the logs out. And they approached the mountain to see if we would allow them to skid their um, cuttings off the mountain. And we agreed to that. And along the way, they agreed to cut trails for us. So they created the whole East Bowl. Uh, we laid it out with them and, and they logged it. And we were fortunate to get some of the stumpage, um, again, to offset, offset our operating cost. From there, uh, we applied for an um, RTP grant to excavate, um, grub the trail out, and pay and seed it, which we did. So without lift service, it's considered backcountry. Uh, we also don't necessarily groom the whole thing. When the snow, natural snow is there, we will run the groomer down um, for safety reasons and to enhance the experience, but it's pretty much backcountry. You gotta earn your turns by hiking. Do you make snow over there? We do not. So you're talking about the trail that comes off the summit, the hike to from the lift, and then it, then it starts at Upper Bagaduce and then goes down to that spider web of trails. That's what you're talking about, right? Correct. Great. And so, so these are, you, do you, do you mostly groom just that main upper part? And then when you drop off the bowl, that's mostly ungroomed? Uh, no, we've got, th there's uh, an intermediate trail from that, uh, the top of the bag all the way down. Um, and when weather and snow allows, we'll run the groom all the way around. And, th and that's a nice long run as well. Very scenic, um, enjoyable. So you've, uh, you've slowly cut new trails off of Bagaduce, dropping down to above your novice area. Do you think you're done over there or would you like to cut some more trails in that little pod? Uh, we have one more to grub out. Um, and there is, there is talk and some ideas about putting another one in, but nothing in the near, in the near term. Where would that be in relation to the current trails? That would be more towards the center of that East Bowl. Right now there's some glades in there, but there's potential for one more trail in there without a lot of investment. So skiers, right, of 
Wesser Unset? Wesser Unset? Yes, he is right of Wesser Unset. Correct. Okay. So between there and the Glades. Okay. Is that a good steep pitch in there? It is a steep pitch. Um, You know, one other really interesting thing, it looks like you have a really strong uphill culture. And I haven't seen this at any other Eastern ski area or, or any other ski area, actually, but you have a designated uphill trail, not a route. Most ski areas have a, have a designated route up downhill trails, but you have a designated uphill route uh, called the Osaker Uphill. I probably didn't pronounce that right, but talk a little bit about why you decided to put in a designated uphill trail. So the Osakari was um, basically, it was the first designated uphill trail in Maine. Uh, I think you just kind of hit on that. Everybody else incorporated existing trails into their uphill program. Um, it's the only designated uphill trail that we have on the mountain, unless it's otherwise designated by ski patrol or management. Angry beavers again came to the forefront here. They saw a need to, to add an uphill trail. They saw a growing, a growing market and decided that it would be a good idea to develop this trail so that downhill and uphill skier traffic could kind of avoid each other. And as you can see on the trail map, it really, it kind of goes around the side of the mountain. It descends up through the woods the whole way. It's a really, really pleasant trip up. It's sheltered from the wind and the sun, and it really feels like a true backcountry experience. Um, there's signage all over so that people who know that if they're coming to uphill, um, they need to get a ticket to do so, or a season pass. If you have a season pass, there's no charge for that ticket. But there was just a need. There was a growing a growing need. And we've seen an increasing amount of uphill skiers since that trail has been implemented. One of the things that impresses me, I've, I've skied that trail a couple of times. Um, I'm not a regular uphiller, but um, I really enjoy it. Uh, number one is you forget where you're at. Uh, I've grown up in this area and you would you would think that you're somewhere else in the world other than Black Mountain. It's just incredibly awesome. Is, is that because of the, the scenery or or just sort of getting lost in the woods? What, what gives you that sense of just being somewhere else? Solitude and getting lost in the woods. Amazing. All right. Uh, any new trails for this season? There are no official new trails this season. Um, the new trails will be what what those glade seekers can find when they find their stashes uh, in the patches, as angry beavers would say. <laughs> All right. Well, hoping for lots of snow so that they can spend a lot of time in the woods. Uh, one thing that I, I noticed, I pulled up Black Mountain of Maine on Google Maps, and it's surrounded by just a sea of forests. So I'm not sure to what extent you've uh, expanded onto your existing to your existing boundaries. Is there a possibility for future expansion? We always dream of, right? Another another dream would be maybe like a third chairlift at some point. But, you know, the board takes calculated time and decision when they make their decisions. So they haven't really determined any of that. They just evaluate all the, all the possibilities are there. There are yeah. a handful of private and public um, entities that we are neighbors with. We do work really well with them. So we have a great working relationship with all of our neighbors. There's two schools out there. There's there's a school that wants us to put lift service on the Bagadoos and the East Bowl, and others want us to just leave it forever wild. Um, basically, the board looks at it, and we calculate what's best for the majority. Mm-hmm. And, and where's your head at these days with what's best for the majority? <laughs> There's been no official meeting, so no. there's no there's no majority, right? <laughs> I think the, the future is lift service up there, and in some days snowmaking, at least for the one long trail for the novice experience. And, and do you think that would be a base to summit lift, or would that be maybe a mid mountain lift that goes up to the top of Bagadoos? I would see, say say um, because of the revenue involved, it would be a mid mountain lift. Hmm. Interesting. And are you currently at the borders of the land that you own? The uh, Bagadoos and the Allagash um, 
pretty much border the usable terrain. Uh, we may be able to sneak out a little bit more, but that that's pretty much the sum of it. And then the East Bowl is extremely s steep with a lot of glacial till, so it would be cost prohibitive to put something in there. Who owns the land around you? Uh, there's private landowners to the south and, and um, west. Um, the backside of the mountain is a private land, a landowner, and there's a portion that's owned by the Mahusik Land Trust, which is public land. And then there's the Broomhall family that own the land to the east. And uh, we have a easement to use that land for the Nordic trails. It, it, would any of the land around you be appropriate for expansion for downhill skiing? I'd have to give thought to that, but my first answer is no. It would, it would take either acquisitions or, or some kind of easement, right? Correct. Okay. Uh, but, but, you know, all things being equal, is it, are they good mountains? Are they skiable mountains? I think what we have is, um, it's a double-edged sword. It's what we have is probably the best because it has Southern exposure. So the experience is very pleasant. And the negative on that is it's Southern exposure. Yeah. Yeah, right. Uh, so, so zooming out to what you do have, uh, Black Mountain Domain claims 600 acres of terrain, which is really big. That's almost the size of Saddleback, and it's bigger than I would have guessed. How do you measure the boundaries and the skiable terrain, and, and how did you come up with that number? Well, it's on the tax map, so and we have boundary to boundary skiing, so it is, it is what it is. I think I think it's worthwhile mentioning one thing is. You could come to Black Mountain on a great day and see the parking lot and the spillover parking lot full. But yet, when you get on the hill, there's no lift lines. And part of the reason is they're skiing the long loop trail, and they're also in the woods, the glades. It just it just eats up a lot of people. Um, and it, so we have the potential for incredible growth in skier visits without impacting the hill. Mm-hmm. So looking at your overall lift lead, it sounds like it's spreading people out pretty nicely right now. I, I, we talked about a potential lift to the top of Bagaduce. Are, are you pretty happy with your lift fleet overall with that with that summit triple, with the little uh, novice double you have with the T-bar? Are you happy with it or, or are there some upgrades or changes you'd like to make? Well, I haven't approached the board. I know the general manager and I have talked about it, but it's nothing official. I think we could enhance the, the triple with a um, a um, carpet to speed the lift up a little bit, and that would increase the uphill capacity. We have a dedicated novice area that's pretty special because um, the beginning skiers have a little world of their own, so we're pretty lucky. Um, we don't have a magic carpet, but the chairlift does a pretty darn good job servicing that area. Yeah, I was talking to uh, Charles Jefferson, who owns Montage Mountain down in Pennsylvania, and he has beginner chairlifts and, and he does not have a magic carpet. And I said, well, do you want a carpet? And he said, well, um, you know, the carpet is nice, but you're not really learning anything because learning how to ski on a lift, you have to learn how to use a lift. And, and eventually you're going to have to use a lift anyway. So that was his philosophy on it. Curious what your thinking is. Are you happy with the lift or would you like to supplement that with a carpet at some point? I'm pretty happy with the lift. I've, I've been over there a couple of times with my grandson, actually, quite a few times. Um, and I watched the families over there and it doesn't take very long for those kids to learn how to use that lift. So they transition from a carpet pretty quick. Okay. Let's talk about night skiing here. The mountain is equipped with lights all the way up to the summit. Uh, my understanding from Deanna is that that's not currently something you offer to the public. Night skiing is is mostly reserved for private events. So talk a little bit about that night skiing system um, and why it's not available to the public right now, and if that may change in the future. So we had night skiing. We were offering night skiing for as long as I've been here, probably longer than that. Roger can clarify. And it just wasn't fitting into the current business model. So we actually decided, which was a long-term goal of the board anyway, we decided to move to take away that night skiing. Um, we replaced it with a free with a free ski night so wednesday nights we have seven scheduled free ski nights this winter 
those are business sponsored. So it's a really great way to bring the community together. And we get a lot of support from our local businesses. They can showcase their their business and their offerings. And everyone who comes to the mountain that night from four to nine skis for free. They can ski um, or two for no charge. There's a charge for rental equipment, but they're just really great nights. When, when we replaced, when we took away the night skiing per se, it was replaced then um, with Thursday being open. So now we're open Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when before that we were just open Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night, and Sunday. We also uh, replaced it with um, high school, middle school races, which are number one, a good profit center and gives um, racing skiers an opportunity to not mix with the public. Okay. Because that was going to be my next question is, is I would assume that you have a, a, you know, local schools and a racing culture around there. You just answer that. So basically they have the mountain to themselves to, to just really focus on their racing. Yeah. And the other thing too, it's, it's not a negative. I don't want you to interpret it as a negative, but the demographics in, um, in our area have changed as they have everywhere else. Families now, both the uh, father and mother work um, and the opportunity to get out for night skiing um, is reduced. And also we're, what, 40 something miles from a metropolitan area. So it's, it's a haul for them to come just for the evening. So skiing has changed quite a bit, night skiing anyway. Yeah. So let's uh, let's shift and talk about snowmaking here. Uh, the, the numbers I see is that you're at 90% snowmaking coverage on your trails. Uh, Dee and I were talking about some of your uh, mobile guns that you're moving to the top of the mountain soon. Uh, where, where are the holes in your snowmaking system? Well, we don't make snow in the backcountry. Um, and we don't make it on the cross-country trails. Do you make it on the uphill route? No. no. So no. that's considered backcountry. That's considered backcountry. Okay. Are you pretty happy with the current system or, or are you trying to look to upgrade and expand that? You always want to upgrade it because you want to put it down uh, more snow faster and to capture that early season skier, that pent up desire to ski. How's your water source there? you have any limitations? We have a great crew of snowmakers. They know the ins and out of our system and they do a really good job at making snow with the resources that we do have. Mm -hmm. But do you have any limitations? Do you, do you have a pond or is there a lake you draw from or a river? We have a pond. Yeah. And it it has limitations. Um, We manage it as best we can, but you can always, you always want more water and temperature. I think the thing that um, it's worth mentioning right now, um, other ski areas that are open have put down a lot of heavy wet snow that's pretty much turned to ice. Um, we have the ability to put down snow because we open later in the season. We can manage that and put down a great skiing surface. So throughout the year, we can we can offer corduroy for a longer period of time during the day and before it turns to boilerplate. So uh, there's little secrets that we have up here that uh, enhance the experience. Well, once you are open, there's a lot of affordable ways to get on the hill. And, and I think this is an important conversation to have in a landscape where walk-up day tickets, even in New England, are approaching $200 and out West are well over $200. So let's start with your partnership with L.L. Bean. I think this is really amazing. $15 lift tickets on Thursdays and $25 lift tickets on Fridays. So those are non-holiday Thursdays and Fridays. Uh, L.L. Bean is helping to sponsor that. Talk about that partnership and how you're able to offer those amazing deals. So L.L. Bean recognized that there was a growing trend of people who wanted to be spending more time outside, particularly when COVID-19 hit. They had a rapid increase. I think I saw in the news where their snowshoe sales had increased like 330%. Um, I'm sure that that lit up some eyes. Um, So they approached us to partner with them. They implemented a program. The program is called Winter Cross Maine. The purpose of that program is to get people outside more affordably. Um, That just, it really hit home. It just meshed, you know, aligned with our mission statement ever so completely. So we worked together um, to come up 
with an offering. Last year, we had one day with them. This year, we're the only mountain that has two days. Um, so they're sponsoring they're sponsoring us and, and allowing us to, to get that ticket out there even more affordably than we normally would. It's just incredible. Uh, do people buy those online or do you have to buy those up at the mountain? You can buy them online um, or you can buy them at our ticket window. And, and even if you walk up and buy a day ticket at Black Mountain of Maine, I imagine that that is fairly affordable. What's your top lift ticket price this year? It's $55. Amazing. Your your season pass is also very affordable. Early season price was just $355. And it looks like Rumford residents got a significant discount from that. Uh, at full price, the pass goes up to $450, which is still very reasonable for the size of mountain we're talking about. Just talk about your philosophy around season passes and why you're making these things so affordable for the community. It's it's basically aligns with our mission statement. It's just really the purpose of Black Mountain is to keep that community, those families outside in an affordable way so they can experience winter, they have a healthy lifestyle and just enjoy things as they come. Um we offer, not only do we have really reasonable season pass pricing, we actually offer free season passes for kids uh, grades two and under. That's for everyone, not just not just Maine. So it's everything we do here is really to support that mission statement. Just unbelievable. So, you know, a lot we're seeing a lot of consolidation in the ski industry and we're seeing a lot of these multi-mountain passes and the... The big passes, the the Epic and Icon passes, have inspired the Indy Pass, which for uh, you know a little less than three hundred bucks at its earliest price, and it's a little more than that now. Skiers get two days each at more than eighty ski areas all around the country and all around the world. In fact, so have you considered joining the Indy Pass? This would be a perfect mountain for it. Well, the board's management style. You know, like I mentioned, is to just take calculated decisions with regards to any long-term plans for the mountain. We we get asked this like all the time. It's funny. Everybody really wants to know. They've definitely been keeping an eye on the current passes, like the Indy Pass, that are being offered across North America, and they're just kind of waiting to see how it goes. It's it's just one of those things. It's like asking, "Are you going to put ten new lifts in?" Have you talked to Doug Fish, the Indy Pass founder? I am unaware if that has happened. Okay, so what we're seeing with, uh, you know, we're seeing these coalitions of sort of mega passes. We're also seeing a lot of independent mountains form their own coalitions. So, you know, you'll make a deal with, say, Whaleback, where your season pass holders would get three days there. And their season pass holders would get three days at Black Mountain of Maine. As far as I'm aware, Black Mountain of Maine does not have any of those reciprocal type partnerships. Is this something that you've thought about? We've kind of done something similar in the past where we had encompassed five mountains throughout Maine. Um, we weren't doing reciprocal free passes, but we were doing discounted passes. I believe at the time it was us um, and there were four others. Some of us were offering half price tickets to other pass holders. Others were just simple discounts that was going on continually up until COVID. And then, you know, COVID kind of put the kibosh to <laughs> a lot of things and it just sort of went by the wayside. I believe our general manager is actually discussing options with other mountains right now to see if that's something that we want to bring back maybe in January or so, but nothing's really set in stone. Okay. Incredible. I'll, I'll stand by for that. Uh, we are at time, but do you have a few minutes? I do want to talk about mountain rentals. Yeah. Um, we offer a kind of a unique item here at Black Mountain of Maine. You can actually rent the entire mountain uh, privately on days that we're not open. So typically that's a Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday, um, unless it's a holiday. And anybody can come in. We don't care if it's just one person. Or if you want to bring nine family members, or if you want to bring 99 of your coworkers, you can come in, rent the mountain for the day. You have access to both chairlifts, uh, Nordic skiing, snowshoeing, um, rental shop and cafe would, would be open, and the bar would be open for purchases. And on onto that, you could add tubing. We do have a tubing, tubing park. 
Um, and then for those who don't, who don't really want to go tubing or anything like that, we do have a, um, we also have a snowshoe trail. So folks can come up in snowshoe as well. Nice. How much you charge for that? It's $3,500 to rent the mountain for the day. That's actually uh, that's a bargain. At Pico, they charge eight thousand, so <laughs> a little farther drive. But uh, is that has that program been popular? We've had quite a few in- inquiries. Yeah, we, I think this is the third year that we've done it, and we've I think we've received three times the number of inquiries that we've done rentals since we've started the program. Okay, nice. So is this you know. Uh, Platykill over in New York. It's it's a it's a little mountain about uh, three hours north of New York City, and they're a Friday, Saturday, Sunday operation. And the New York Times did a a profile of them several years back, and um, and said it essentially offering the private mountain rentals saved the mountain because I, I think they're up to charging around six thousand a day. And uh, and what they found was was that it it brought in enough revenue to really stabilize the business. And Platykill is a uh, family-owned place. I talk to the owner all the time about this sort of thing. But uh, have you found the same? Is is this a good supplemental business? It's definitely a good, it's definitely a good way to supplement the model for sure. Um, Interestingly enough, there are several, let me think, last year we had Oh, two or three private rentals. One was with the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital. We actually had an anonymous donor rent the mountain for the day um, in a very philanthropic way. All Anybody who had gone through the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital or worked there or families of employees or families of patients could come and enjoy the mountain for a day. So that was very, that was a very beautiful day. It was just just wonderful to see somebody else watching us give back and wanting to add to that and give back this year. We have a foundation coming in March and I wish I could remember the name right now, but they're renting it to raise money for a group of um, a group of kids in the Boston area who don't, who wouldn't otherwise be able to ski. So they're, it's being rented for not only private enjoyment, but you can rent it and be philanthropic in that way. In my, in my business world, um, we have a, a, a company that's going to come up and bring uh, vendors that we buy from, give a uh, training session for a small period of time, and then ski the rest of the day. Um, we've gone to other facilities to do that and. Black Mountain is perfect for it. So they're looking at this very seriously. That's terrific. And then outside of the rentals, do you ever open for powder days? Like Magic Mountain is open Thursday through Sunday in Vermont. But if they get more than six inches of snow, they'll open for a powder day on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if they don't have a mountain rental. And Platykill, if they don't have a mountain rental, will open if they get more than a foot of snow. Do you have anything similar at Black? We have in the past. Um we haven't had powder since then. <laughs> it's something that's always in the back of our minds. Um, right. Yeah. T- take the sick day and and uh, and go skiing. Okay. Let's wrap up here with uh, with COVID. I just want to know where your head's at uh, as far as restrictions this year. You know, what can skiers expect when they show up? How will it be the same as last year? How will it be different? Just lay it out for us. So it'll be a lot. It should feel a lot more normal. We're really anxious to welcome people and their gear back inside. We have cubbies. Uh, those are going to be back and usable for people. They can come in. They can boot up inside the lodge. They're welcome to leave their gear inside those cubbies and go out and enjoy the day. Uh, last year, we we had a one-way kind of traffic flow set up, and we actually found that that worked pretty well. So... People will be entering the lodge through the back. Um, they'll go up on our deck, which was actually recently expanded. We expanded the deck last year. So for those that might not be comfortable coming inside, there's more room. There's even more room now for them to be outside. Of course, we're still going to be operating under the guidelines of the CDC and have those sanitation stations available everywhere. Um, 
and our live music series is coming back, which is great. We offer free live music on the weekends, Saturdays and Sundays. And fully loading lifts? Yes. Yep. Uh, masks, mandatory or optional indoors? Uh, masks are recommended by the CDC, so we are recommending them. All right. Well, sounds sounds like a good time. I hope that you're able to open up uh, very soon. It, 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 what's your target opening date this year? Target opening date is December 26th. All right. Let it snow. All right. Well, Deanna and Roger, I cannot thank you enough for your time today. Uh, this is is really just an amazing little spot. I think it gets overlooked. I think that it will not be getting overlooked for too much longer because it's you've really built something special up there. And the way that you continue to improve it uh, is just an amazing story. And I'm really excited to help tell it today and uh, even more excited to come up there and ski with you. Great. We're looking forward to seeing you. Thank you. That's Roger Arsenault, Chairman of the Board of Directors, and Deanna Kersey, Marketing Manager of Black Mountain of Maine. Look, I don't care who you are, or how much of a badass you are, or how cynical you are. How do you not support that place? How do you not want to ski there? How do you not want to go thin glades and then get after it with the Angry Beavers? Just a phenomenal story of how potential can translate into reality if you give it a chance. Thank you very much for that, Deanna and Roger. I really appreciate your time, and every single person listening appreciates your work to transform Black Mountain of Maine into the place it's become today. Thank you all very much for listening. I am currently lining up 2022 podcasts, and trust me, there are going to be some great ones. For now, please go subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com and follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Storm Ski Journal. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I will talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.